Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the right I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Thanks, Carl. Well, before we start, uh, I should give a shameless plug for the uh, Christian School Musical this week. I know Jordan wants me to do that. Um, uh, But others too. There's a few people involved. There's a few... to see. Uh, speaking of brushes with fame, I don't know if any of you have ever uh, had a brush uh, with fame, you've ever met, met someone uh, famous or uh, uh, you know, someone that's admired by lots of people. Um, thanks, Jacob. Uh, one of my f- very few brushes with uh, fame uh, was once meeting the then Prime Minister John Howard. Now, that's probably not most people's idea of a brush with fame. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but John Howard and actually the then Chief of Defence, Peter Cosgrove, uh, popped along to the place where I worked. Uh, it, was, it was the time of, uh, it was just after September 11. Uh, it was just after the, the time in the immediate aftermath of the Bali bombings. Uh, and we had troops at that stage in Iraq and Afghanistan and they came along 
uh, to say thank you to us for the work that we were doing in keeping uh, our troops safe and our country safe as well. It was, a, uh, it was quite a meaningful experience. But what surprised me was uh, that after both of them had finished speaking, uh, people crowded around to kind of to meet them. Uh, and we all lined up, uh, lined up to uh, shake hands with, uh, with the Prime Minister and uh, I remember standing around awkwardly in a kind of a conversation with Peter Cosgrove, you know, kind of trying to sidle into the conversation uh, uh, to meet the great man. Uh, but to be honest, uh, it was, you know, that, that kind of scene is relatively tame in comparison, isn't it, to the kinds of things that you see at like a film premiere or something like that or, uh, or when a big, you know, a, a well-known band uh, comes to the country. Uh, uh, there's that famous footage, I don't know if you've seen it, of uh, the Beatles or of ABBA visiting Australia. Uh, there's scenes of people being kind of, you know, uh, carried out of the crowd because they'd collapsed because of the, the, the pressing throng. Uh, and you could probably Google just about any visit of a famous musician uh, to see vast crowds and wild hysteria. People do almost anything to uh, meet some of their favourite actors uh, or musicians. Uh, surprisingly, though, I think Jesus' early ministry was very similar to that, although perhaps maybe not without, uh, maybe without the hysteria and so on. Uh, but in the account that we read before from Mark's biography of Jesus, Jesus comes to this town called Capernaum, uh, and he's so wildly popular among the people there that he's mobbed. Uh, they crowd into this home where he is so that there's no space inside or outside uh, of this house. We're not talking about the hundreds of thousands of people, uh, you know, that, people that we saw in 1964 with the Beatles. Uh, this is a small town. The population is probably about 1,500 people. So maybe the crowd's maximum like a couple of hundred or something like that. But the point is that there's this town. Jesus goes to this town and he's so, uh, such an attractive figure, such a popular figure that people say, I, I want to meet this man. Uh, that's entirely understandable because uh, if you think about what's happened in Mark's gospel so far, Jesus has done some extraordinary things. He's introduced by John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, look, there's this guy coming uh, after me and I can't even untie his shoes. Uh, that's how important he is. Uh, he's so exalted, he's so far beyond me uh, that I can't even do that humble task. Uh, Jesus has then driven out evil spirits from people, which would be hard to believe were it not that people saw it with their own eyes. Jesus healed people. He healed a man with leprosy. It's one thing, I think, to crowd around the Prime Minister or a famous actor or a famous musician. It's quite another thing to crowd around someone who might be able to change your life forever. Uh, I shook hands with John Howard uh, and I felt good for a few seconds uh, and then my life went on uh, more or less as it had before. <laughs> but people who encountered Jesus were never the same again. Their lives changed. Jesus did what no celebrity can do. Jesus fixed people. Uh, Jesus healed people and he put their lives back together again. And my prayer is that as we encounter Jesus in this passage today, that we won't be left the same either. That it won't just be a passing encounter, but that we'll go away fixed, forgiven, healed and restored. So let's pray that God would do that uh, and then let's dig into the passage. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, 
thank you that in the Gospels we meet Jesus, uh, and by the power of your Holy Spirit we meet Jesus as well. And Lord, we ask that uh, we would meet Jesus this morning, either for the first time uh, or for the hundredth time or thousandth time. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to know Jesus uh, and to receive his words that he speaks to us, uh, words of mercy and grace. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. So as the passage starts, uh, then we find this group of four men Uh, They're carrying their paralysed friend to meet Jesus. It's hard to imagine, I think, what it must have been like for these four guys and for that paralysed man. He'd been paralysed, we don't know for how long. But living uh, in those days, much as living in these days, really, there was no cure. There's no possible cure for his paralysis. Uh, And so imagine then, in that context... Uh, you're you're paralysed, you you have no hope uh, of being restored. Imagine then that you hear that there's a man who's come to town who can do things that, like what no one else has ever seen before. Maybe most of us would be sceptical, but if you didn't have any other option, if you're paralysed and, you know, there's there's no prospect uh, of cure on the horizon then you'd probably give it a go, wouldn't you? You'd probably think, oh, well, I may as well, I may as well turn up, go along, see what's happened. Uh, especially if other people that you knew had already been healed by Jesus. By this time, Jesus' uh, reports of what Jesus had done had circulated through the area. And Jesus wasn't just healing uh, back pain. You know, he wasn't just doing things that no one could see. Uh, he was doing things that people could tell were real. Uh, he was making people... Uh, who had never walked, walk again. He was making people who couldn't see, see again. You can't kind of fake that kind of thing. It either happens or it doesn't. If someone was healing people like that, then you'd know about it. And so these four men and this paralyzed man hear about what's going on and they go to see Jesus. The friends obviously have to uh, carry their uh, their paralyzed friend. He can't walk. but they walk all this way, they carry him all this way, and then they get there. They finally get there, and, and, and they can't get in to see Jesus. So in their determination, they decide to dig through the roof. Now, houses in those days generally had flat roofs uh, that, uh, that could be used as kind of an outdoor entertaining space. Uh, and, and the roofs were kind of uh, cross-hatched, they, they had... Uh, beams and and then sticks on top of that and then straw on top of that and then mud on top of that. That It's a pretty hefty construction. So it was possible though to dig through it but it would have been it would have been an effort. It would have been an effort to get through. But these friends uh, think to themselves well we've come all this way uh, to meet this man who's healing people. Let's dig through the roof and, and get our friend in. They're so desperate to get help for their friend that they're willing to go to these great lengths. Uh, to get them, his, their friend to Jesus. Finally, they break through the roof, they lower him down before Jesus, and Jesus is so stunned by their faith and their desperation uh, to get their friend to him that we're told Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. Now, he actually didn't say that, did he? But that's what the friends were probably expecting. Man, we've come all this way, we've come all this way to, to, to get our friend to meet Jesus. 
We've dug through the roof and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What a letdown. You know, I think, you know, I think most of us, if we couldn't walk, (laughs) that wouldn't be our choice of cure. Jesus is not suggesting that this man's disability is the punishment for his sin. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus rejects outright any kind of simple equation between sin and sickness. Rather, what Jesus is doing is pointing out, not only to this man, but to everyone else, the deeper need that we have as human beings. We think that our biggest problem is health. That's clear in the amount of money that we spend every year on health. In Australia, every year we spend over $160 billion on health care. That's from the government and from non-government sources. That's almost 10% of our GDP. So like in, simp- in simple terms, 10, 10% of the money that we generate as, a, as an economy every year, 10% of that goes on health care. That's an extraordinary amount, isn't it? When you consider all the other things that you need in life. Uh, to survive. Personal health spending is nearly $30 billion a year. We think that our biggest problem is health and well-being. But Jesus says that our biggest problem is not that. Jesus says our biggest problem actually is sin. This man's deepest need and our deepest need is not physical healing but forgiveness from God. And yet I don't think that for most people, if you ask them what their deepest need was, I don't think that's the diagnosis that most people would give. In fact, if the question of forgiveness even comes up, most often the question is uh, not whether God can forgive me, whether God can forgive me, but, but whether I can forgive myself. Isn't that right? But actually, the Bible is totally disinterested in the whole idea of forgiving yourself. The Bible is far more interested in the idea of God's forgiveness. But actually, I think the two are more deeply connected than they first appear. Our sense of shame and guilt and the need for forgiveness is based on a real symptom. But the problem is that we've misdiagnosed the disease. And so what we mistake as the need to forgive ourselves is actually the echo of the need that we have to receive God's forgiveness. So when people talk about the need to forgive themselves, it's because they have a sense of shame about something, right? Uh, They have a sense that they've done something that they shouldn't have done. Uh, and they feel uh, that they need to, to, to forgive themselves. So they, they feel that there's this sense of higher obligation, and they, need, they feel the need for pardon. The Bible says that that's because God's ways and God's purposes and God's pattern for the world are printed deeply on our hearts, on our minds, on who we are, albeit imperfectly, but it's still there. And when we fail to live up to that standard written by God on our hearts, our conscience convicts us. We feel ashamed, we feel guilty. There's this obligation, there's this higher standard that we don't meet and we feel bad about that. 
Sometimes our sense of guilt and shame is bound up with the things that we have done to other people. That makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, It makes sense that when we offend somebody, we feel bad about that. Uh, It makes sense uh, that if we say something hurtful to people, we feel bad about that. Uh, It makes sense if our parents ask us to do something and and we don't do it, it, we feel that we've let them down. Uh, I remember when I was in primary school and possibly when I was in high school, I don't know, but I remember my mum used to make me lunch. You know, she put all this effort, I've probably said this before, she's put all this effort into making lunches uh, and then I'd chuck them in the bin. I don't even know why. Uh, But I didn't want to eat them and then so that she wouldn't know, I would throw them in the bin. I just think that is the most awful thing to do. Uh, I didn't think that at the time, but I, I... I actually find that idea deeply painful now. Isn't it funny? It's such a small thing, isn't it? But it's, at heart, it, it, it strikes at, at our self-love and our lovelessness, you know, our, our failure to love others. It makes sense, doesn't it, that when we hurt other people that we feel ashamed of that. But sometimes we feel ashamed and guilty about stuff that nobody knows about. Uh, ashamed and guilty about stuff that maybe the connection... Uh, kind of with hurting people isn't so clear. Uh, Loads of people, men and women, are locked up uh, throughout our world in addiction to pornography. Uh, No one knows about it but them, uh, but they feel ashamed and guilty about it. Loads of people uh, regularly use drugs. The statistics, the statistics actually on the use of illicit drugs are astonishing. The use of ice uh, in, in Australia, it's, 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 a, it's a huge percentage. Of, I think it's like one or two million people uh, out of, in the Australian population have tried ice. That's, that's astronomically high, uh, considering our population. Uh, they do it in secret. No one knows about it, but they still feel ashamed and guilty about it. The message that we get day in and day out from our society is that as long as it's not hurting anyone, that's okay. But it's not as simple as that, is it? Because despite the kind of the prevalence of that message, despite the kind of the repetition, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, people still feel ashamed and guilty about it. There's this sense that there's an obligation, there's a standard that we're not meeting. There's a sense that we're hurting people, that we're offending someone. But who is it that we're hurting? Who is it that we're offending? Our society says, oh, well, you're hurting yourself. But the Bible's answer, which is a better answer, I think, is that our sense of shame and our sense of higher obligation is a remnant, it's an echo of this pattern for the world which God has pressed onto our hearts and minds. And when we transgress that pattern, when we, when we work against God, what we, when we work against what God has made us to be, we feel ashamed. We feel guilty. We feel bad about it. The buried shame and the guilt that we have is a testament to the fact that we've wronged God, that we live in his world, but we don't live in his world as he intended us to live. We live in his world, but we take his world for ourselves and try to rob uh, him of it. Our most desperate need is to be forgiven by God, by the God who loves us and who longs for us to return to him. Jesus knew that. 
Jesus knew that our biggest need is not health care, but forgiveness. And so Jesus offers this man and he offers us what we need most. He offers us forgiveness. So Jesus identifies this man's deepest need. What is that? His deepest need is to hear words of forgiveness, to be forgiven. You are forgiven, says Jesus. But then, for the religious leaders listening in, they find those words deeply problematic. We're told in verse 6, Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They think that Jesus' words are blasphemous. That's because they understand that the authority to forgive sins belongs only to God. Uh, interestingly, that's not what we think. Uh, that's not what Australians naturally think. We don't naturally think that the authority to forgive sins belongs first and foremost to God. We think that the authority to forgive sins belongs first and foremost to us or to the person who was wronged. So if Jesus did this miracle today, we wouldn't accuse him of blasphemy. Uh, we'd accuse him of sticking his nose in where it didn't belong. Suppose for a moment that, uh, to illustrate that, suppose for a moment uh, that someone punches you in the face uh, and then I say, I forgive them. Uh, you wouldn't say, wow, isn't Carl magnanimous? Maybe because you don't even know what that word means. No, but <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say, isn't Carl wonderful? Isn't he compassionate? You would say, who does he think he is offering forgiveness to someone he's not even involved? I was the one who was hurt. I was the one who was punched. Why is he forgiving them? It's up to me to forgive them. Our question is not, how can God forgive sins? How can Jesus claim to have the authority that, to, to forgive sins? How can he claim to do what only God can do? Our question is, uh, how can God claim to do something that we think belongs to us? But the thing that we have to understand is that every sin in the world involves God. Uh, every wrong is not only an offence against someone else, it is an offence against someone else, uh, and forgiveness needs to happen there as well. But it's also an offence against God. Uh, at first that sounds maybe a bit surprising, but again, we can understand that at the human level. Uh, so for instance, if someone hurts your child, it's not only a crime against your child, it's a crime against you as the parent. You feel the pain, you experience the hurt as well. Uh, I don't know if anyone's been following what's been happening in New South Wales, but there's been for, I think for the last 10 years, the hunt for the body of a young man who was killed, uh, and his parents have been on a crusade to find the body uh, and to find, uh, you know, to, to find who, who did the crime, uh, to, to find justice. Uh, the, the crime wasn't only against their son, the crime was against them as well. Absolutely. Uh, Again, I, I know a family who many years ago now, two daughters, they were probably in their uh, early 20s, they were driving on a highway at night and a drunk driver uh, crashed into them, killed one, uh, seriously injured the other. Who was wronged by that crime? Uh, obviously, the person who died was, was wronged by that, their, their life was taken from them. But clearly, the family was wronged by that as well. Uh, they had to live for years after that with the 
reality that their daughter was no longer there or their sister was no longer there. Uh, that was a hard thing for them to live, live with. In some ways, actually, their suffering, I think, was worse. None of them found that easy, an easy thing to live with. Sins involve other people. And just as that's true at the human level, it's true with God. See, think about this. God is the creator of our world. He made this world. He made this world good. He made us as human beings. Uh, He made us in his image. Uh, He gives us life. He sustains us. We belong to him. The world belongs to him. And we and the world belong to him first of all and most of all. He's greater than all of us. We owe him everything. So when someone sins against you or I, they not only sin against you, they sin against God and they sin against God most of all. They sin against God because they wrong you and your life is in God's hands. Uh, They sin against God because they break the good pattern for the world which God has established. They sin against God because he gives them everything they need for life and they take that precious gift and use it for evil, to hurt you. In our minds, we are the most offended party in any wrong that a person commits against us. But in the Bible, actually, the most offended person is God because he made us, he made you, he made this world and he sustains it. It's a crime against his love and his mercy and his compassion. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, as you might know, there's a king by the name of David. David was, for the most part, a good king, but he was also did something of incredible barbarity. He stole another man's wife and he had the husband killed to cover up the crime. Uh, David committed adultery and murder and then he has the nerve in one of his psalms to say, against you and you only have I sinned. And you think to yourself... What about the other people involved? But David says, actually, no. There's a sense in which against you and you only, against God and God only, have I sinned. At one level, David is right. Whatever sins that we commit against each other, however evil, however wrong, however wicked, they're almost they're always infinitely more grievous to God, infinitely more wicked, infinitely more serious than they are to us. That is not a way of diminishing the suffering that we experience at the hands of other people. That is a genuine hurt. The Bible's message is not that we've offended God and that actually diminishes the hurt that we feel. No, actually, the Bible's message is that the hurt that we feel is absolutely 100% as bad as we think it is. And the wrong that we've done against God is so much unimaginably greater than that. We can't even begin to fathom it. The pain against God is so much worse than the pain against us, the wrong against us. So that David can say, yeah, in... In a way, that's true. Against God and God only have I sinned. So when Jesus says those words, I forgive you, he's not claiming to be a madman. 
He's not claiming to be uninvolved in all the offences that this man, this paralysed man has committed. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the one who was most wronged by all that this man had ever done. And Jesus says, I forgive you. And the religious leaders understand completely what Jesus is saying. That's why they accuse him of blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You're claiming to be God. Absolutely. Whatever wrong you've done, whether it was against yourself or against others, whatever it was, whether it, uh, in, it, it involved God. Uh, and God was the most offended party. He made you, he gives you life. You've robbed and cheated what he made you to be, but he also made the other person, uh, and you've hurt them. You've robbed and cheated a person whom uh, he loves. So you might have cheated uh, on someone, you might have cheated on your wife or or your husband. Uh, You need their forgiveness, absolutely. You need to confess that to them and you probably need to seek help from uh, a godly Christian person or a Christian counsellor. But most of all, actually, you need God's forgiveness. You might have stolen from someone, you might have cheated someone out of something. You need the forgiveness of that person, you need to restore what was taken. But most of all, actually, you need God's forgiveness. You might be perpetually grumpy uh, and all the time making people's lives miserable. You need uh, the forgiveness of those people around you whose whose lives you're making a misery. But actually, most of all, you need the forgiveness of God. And actually, all those things are really just at the periphery. They're just the little things which float around the edge of the big thing. The big thing is not adultery or theft or murder or whatever it is. Those things are just symptoms of the disease. The great sin and the root of all other sins is the refusal to let God be God, the refusal to let God be at the centre of your life. The great sin is putting yourself or someone else or something else in the place of God. And fundamentally, the thing for which we all need forgiveness is that is replacing God and putting ourselves or something else or someone else in the place of him. And yet, because Jesus is God, come to us in humility and love, Jesus can say the words that we most need to hear. That is, you are forgiven. So Jesus recognises our deepest need. He recognises that our need is forgiveness. Uh, And he recognises that our need is forgiveness from God and he claims to be able to grant that. But how do we know that those words are true? Uh, You know, it's one thing to say, well, they are true, uh, isn't it? But nobody wants to put their hope in words that are empty and false. No one wants to appear before God on the day of judgment and say, well, Jesus said that he could forgive my sins uh, and and to have God say, well, actually, that that was a lie. How do we know that Jesus is is?" being truthful when he says that he can forgive sins. Well, with that question in mind, Jesus does something more to give us uh, certainty about his power and his authority to forgive sins. Uh, We're told that Jesus knew what the religious leaders were thinking. Uh, He knew that they doubted his authority. And so he says to them in verse 8, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? 
But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So which is easier? Is it easy to say uh, your sins are forgiven or is it easy to say pick up your mat, go home, walk? Well, in a sense, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Uh, because no one can tell whether that's true. Uh, you can say that to someone, I forgive you, uh, and you might seethe with bitterness for the rest of your life, but no one will ever know, will they? Uh, Jesus can say your sins are forgiven, uh, and no one can tell whether that's true. How do we know? It's much harder to say get up and walk because the truth of those words are immediately obvious. Either the man gets up, picks up his mat and walks out the door, or he doesn't. But so that people would know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, Jesus heals this man. The man gets up, picks up his mat, walks out the door. Jesus does what can be seen in order to prove that he can do what can't be seen. And in fact, this miracle is just a shadow of that greater miracle when Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus made this man walk to prove he had the authority to forgive sins. But later in his life, Jesus died on the cross, condemned for us. But he also rose again from the dead. And his resurrection, the Bible says, proves his authority to forgive sins. Who else has risen from the dead uh, on their own terms and at at their own time? Jesus' resurrection demonstrates who he is, the righteous Son of God with the authority either to condemn us or to forgive us. The Apostle Paul says in, uh, in Acts uh, at the Areopagus uh, in, in Athens, he says that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. How do we know that? Because uh, he's given proof, God has given proof by raising him from the dead. Can you trust Jesus has the authority to forgive you? Yes. Why? Because this man walked away healed. Only God could do that. Can you trust that Jesus has the authority to forgive you? Yes, because Jesus rose from the dead, vindicated, holy, righteous and blameless. And only God could do that. Can he forgive your sins? Yes. Can he forgive your selfishness? Yes, he can. Can he forgive your greed, your your hypocrisy? Yes, he can forgive you for that. Uh, Can he forgive you for the wrong desires that lie in the bottom of your heart, those desires that only you know about? Yes, God can forgive you for that. Can he forgive you for living as though you are God, as though you are the most offended party? Yes, he can forgive you for that. Can he forgive you for your pride, which until this point has kept you from admitting that there's anything that needs to be forgiven? Can he forgive you for rejecting him and despising him up until this point? Can he forgive you for knowing him and willfully turning away? Yes, God can forgive you for all those things. Because you see, Jesus is on a mission of forgiveness. That's the purpose of his life, is to bring forgiveness to people. Just after this account, uh, Mark has put here another little story to show the extent of that love and forgiveness of God. Again, the religious leaders get their nose bent out of shape uh, by what Jesus does and says, 
But this time it's because Jesus is spending time with the people that they consider to be the worst, the most offending people in all society. And they say to Jesus, why are you eating with these people? Why are you eating with sinners, with evil people, with wicked people? And Jesus' answer is as simple as it is profound. He says in verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus isn't saying that there are some people who don't need forgiveness. Uh, We all need forgiveness. Jesus isn't saying that there are some who don't need forgiveness and, uh, and there are others who do, so he's gone to the ones who do. No, he's... He's pointing out that if his mission is to bring forgiveness, the forgiveness of God to people, if his mission is to bring the forgiveness of God to a condemned world, then his place is among the people who need forgiveness, isn't it? Whoever they are. How stupid would it be for God to go to all the effort of sending his own son into our world? How stupid would it be for Jesus to spend all that effort to go to the cross to die for sins and then when someone says to him can you forgive me he said I'm sorry that message is for other people that message is for the middle class people that, that message is for the people who have their lives together surely you must be able to forgive me Jesus no I'm sorry I didn't come, I, I didn't come for you How profoundly stupid would that be? How profoundly nonsensical would that be for Jesus to go to all that effort, to expend all that energy, to suffer the wrath of God? Only for you to say, can you forgive me, Jesus? No, I'm sorry. No, Jesus says that the reason he's eating with those people, those sinners is because he's on a mission of forgiveness. And forgiveness means he goes to the people who need to be forgiven. There's not a person in our world, there's not a person here, who's not sick with sin and doesn't need Jesus. And there's not a person here who needs Jesus And coming to Jesus will be refused. All who come, Jesus says, he will receive. Jesus came for people who are mired in wrong desires and evil desires. He came for greedy people. He came for thieves. He came for people who cheat. He came for prostitutes, for criminals. He came for the rich and the middle class who overlook the needs of the poor people around them. But in some ways, as I said before, those are just the peripheral things. Most of all, Jesus came for people who've rejected God and who've replaced God with either themselves or something else. You see, the Christian life doesn't begin when we ask God to forgive us for being greedy or selfish or whatever else it might be. The Christian life begins when we ask God to forgive us for living without him, for replacing him and dishonouring him. Whether you or I feel it or not, we need God to forgive us. 
And Jesus says that he has the authority to do that. And Jesus proves that he has the authority to do that. So let me invite you then uh, with these four men uh, who brought their paralyzed friend. Let me invite you to crowd around that first century house uh, and to dig through the roof and to do all that you can to meet the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who can speak the words, the true words, the authoritative words that you and I need to hear. You are forgiven, not just by anyone, but forgiven by God. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to confess that all of us are people whose lives are marred by sin. We feel that guilt and shame every day when we fail to live according to the pattern that you have created for this world, when we fail to live according to the pattern that you've created for us as human beings in your world, in your image. Uh, when we fail to be like you, like Christ, people of love and generosity and compassion and goodness and uprightness, people of concern. Lord, we know our faults and our failings. Uh, We know our shame and our guilt. And so we thank you that you sent Jesus on a mission of forgiveness a mission to forgive us for the sins that no one else can forgive us for except you. Thank you that you sent him with arms out open wide to embrace not the good uh, or the together, but to embrace those of us who are guilty and ashamed, who know our sin and who are willing to acknowledge it. And Lord, we lay it out again before you now, and ask your grace and your forgiveness and trust that in the cross of Jesus our sins are really cast into the depths of the sea. Lord, help us with those people who brought their friend to crowd around Jesus, to know him, to love him, to hear his words and his assurance that we are forgiven and that we belong to you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.